that is what has kept me just marching forwards towards the horizon endlessly day in and day out is that I'm just independently very inspired to push this thing and take it as far as I can. You're listening to Cut Time from the Berkeley Music Business Journal. On today's episode, we're joined by Rebecca Lobey. Rebecca is a touring artist, a songwriter, and an experienced producer. On this episode, she talks to us about her time spent in school, stepping out of her comfort zone, and how to build a career off the ground. I uh, grew up first in the suburbs of D.C. I was born in Arlington, Virginia, and my family moved to Atlanta when I was eight. So Atlanta is what I think of as home. It's what I expect to see out of the car windows when I'm driving around is like the rolling foothills of Georgia, the kudzu out the window, a little town every 20 to 30 miles. Um, I grew up, so I grew up mostly in the suburbs of Atlanta. And that was where I started as a young teenager, preteen. I was writing poetry, terrible poetry. Started playing guitar. And it occurred to me that I could take these terrible preteen poems I was writing and these guitar chords I was strumming and mush them together and start writing terrible teenage folk songs. So that's kind of where I started as a singer-songwriter. It was, you know, middle school into high school. And it was just my outlet. It was just what I did. It was how I how I interpreted my world. And that hasn't changed, actually. It's just how I express myself. Came to, to Berkeley when you were 16? I moved to Berkeley two weeks after my 17th birthday. So I graduated from high school in Atlanta when I was 16. I, I skipped my junior year of high school because I realized in my sophomore year that if I took one summer school class that I could just become a senior wow. because that's the way math works. You needed 21 credits to graduate and I already had 14 and I was going to get to, I was just like, why would I hang out for a whole extra year when I could just move on and get out into the real world? I was, I don't know what my hurry was, but I was ready to get on with no, it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so I graduated high school when I was 16, um, came to Berkeley. I wow. was I think the second youngest student in my freshman class. There was like a 15 year old you know, violin prodigy and, and me. And at the time, it was wow. pretty intimidating being here. I think I didn't realize at the time how overwhelming and intimidating it was. And I perhaps it's like this for every incoming freshman, but being a 17-year-old at a school full of musicians where the average freshman was 26 – or maybe it's the average student was 26 because there were so many wow. returning students who right. had gone on, gone to other undergrads, had other degrees that had other careers and returned to school. And I don't know what the demographic is like here now, but when I was at Berkeley, the average student was 26 and there was an eight to one male to female ratio. Oh my God. So as a 17 year old girl, it was it was wild. I also heard not to harp on the demographics, but I did hear at the time that of the 1,200 guitar principals at Berkeley, 10 of them were women when I was there. Yeah, I think there was one woman on the guitar staff. They've done a lot of work That's, that is <laughs> to turn that around. So, I uh, yeah, thank, thankfully. Wow. So I was a vocal principal. I was way okay. too intimidated to declare guitar. I would have loved to study guitar. It just scared me. Like, I just didn't feel equipped to... Um, 
I, I did. I wasn't brave enough, basically. And maybe if I'd waited a couple of years before coming and you know had a little more life experience, I might have bucked up and done it. But no regrets. So I studied Berkeley. Got a lot. I mean, studied vocals here. I got a lot out of it. I studied MP and E. Right. Because right. as a tiny sixteen-year-old child looking at the music industry and all these <laughs> pop stars, there was Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and Christina Aguilera, and I was like, when I get my record deal, I don't want some evil producer to manipulate my sound in the studio. I want to know what all of those knobs do so i that's a good way of, of, <laughs> of looking at it <laughs> yeah except for there's that naivete of being 16 and just assuming you're going to get a major label deal so i uh, but, you know it's the dream <laughs> i've always been an optimist so i studied mp and e i absolutely loved it i loved it so much that i just dove fully into it i just really immersed myself in the department i you know i was just telling someone earlier today that when i was here at berkeley the studios were open 22 hours a day. I believe they probably still are. They just closed from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. to be cleaned, and then they reopened for classes. So I was that like sort of typical oldest child, front row, you know, straight A, first kid with their hand up student. So I was here every day from six to midnight working on my own projects and then from midnight to 6 a.m i would stay and assist other students on their projects and then in hours that i wasn't assisting other students i would do practice time where you can sign up in two hour blocks for practice time and i would practice in the studios and then i go home and sleep for a couple hours and then i'd wake up and go to class from like nine to noon no 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 and then i worked at a bank i was a bank teller i worked at a bank from nine to noon and then I also had a work-study job on the tech crew, like fixing gear and stuff in the studios. Wow, you were all over the place. And then I would uh, do my own classes, usually from about noon to six, and then I'd go back. Yeah, it was nuts. I was just like living on Slim Fast bars and Diet Coke like a crazy, crazy kid. <laughs> the college lifestyle. The college lifestyle. Oh, and Dunkin' Donuts right across the street. Yeah, that hasn't that hasn't changed. <laughs> no, no. Wow, so you really, you really kind of dove into audio engineering. And Absolutely. Whole... You know, for me, it was a place that I found that I could fit into the ecosystem of this college right. and feel comfortable. And I was, I think on, I felt on slightly more equal footing because this was just before the laptop initiative. People didn't okay. have, you know, GarageBand didn't exist. A lot, most people didn't have Pro Tools at home before coming to Berkeley. That's right on that. Yeah, that right cusp. on that cusp. I mean, we, we were still doing projects on two inch tape. We were one of the last classes, I think, before, Quantity like went out of business briefly. And I mean, like, that's awesome. I wish they would yeah. kind of integrate that a little bit more. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, you know, we just did a few, but I did some edits on two-inch analog tape. You know, cutting, and it, cutting it up, cutting it with a freaking exacto knife, that and is taping awesome. it with tape, and that's what a splice was. And now, in my world, if I'm comping or editing in Pro Tools, you know, a cut is pressing Apple E on my keyboard, right? And that makes the cut. But that cut represents a splice with an exacto knife, right? And that's just and and then you can move things around and those moving things around used to be done like on a Whitney Houston record in the eighties they would fly stuff around but they flew it around with two inch tape I mean it's crazy to think about I'm glad I had that background I'm glad that I don't have to do it that way anymore <laughs> although I am dying to make a full record on two inch tape it's just expensive it's a it's it's a great way to think about it though like you like you mentioned even if you're on Pro Tools and you're pressing. A, a shortcut you're still you still have that mindset and you went through the experience of yeah. wow this is what it's really emulating yeah exactly so I was really into MP&E I loved it I immersed myself in it it was a comfortable place for me to land I didn't actually feel musically very 
comfortable among the rest of the students here because I was fairly underdeveloped. You know, I hadn't had that much. They covered everything I knew about music theory on the first day of harmony. They were like, okay, here are the staffs, here are the notes, here are all the, you know, basic rhythmic notations. And I was like, oh, wait, there's more. (laughs) (laughs) It was like a sinking feeling. And then I had four more semesters of it from then on. So I was just constantly trying to keep my head above water. Meanwhile, there were students I knew who tested out of all four semesters of Harmony. They came in knowing all of that. So I felt just totally overwhelmed by the rest of the student population. And I, you know, I wasn't... I was writing for myself, but I wasn't really putting myself out there as a singer-songwriter because there were so many incredible people here. I was like, nah, y'all got this. Like, I'm just going to I'll just be down in the studio. I was like, and then I could record those incredibly talented people, and I could provide a service that was useful in this ecosystem of the school. And there, there wasn't such a huge gap between what people's ability were coming in in MP&E. It was like sort of a level more level playing field you worked at a studio in boston after school as an engineer right i did when i graduated i was so lucky um a teacher here i believe he still teaches here his name's michael moss he came up to me in the hallway at school like well actually what happened was i got a gig at the studio singing because they recorded audiobooks for social science curriculums okay, wow. and he needed someone to sing like you're a grand old flag you're a high flying flag and you know oh Shenandoah I long to see you just like American folk songs they needed that for the background of this audiobook and one of my mp teachers knew I sang and recommended me to go in and sing so I went in it was a Thursday night a couple of weeks before graduation I went in, I sang these songs, and at the end of the session, the producer said, well, we need to cut those in to the package for the client. They're coming in tomorrow morning at 8, and they need to hear these. And the and Michael said, oh, oh I, you know, I didn't know that. All the editors have gone home. And Susan, the producer, was like, well, what are we going to do? We need to get the blah, blah, blah. And I'm in the vocal booth, and I was like, uh, I, I could edit that in there for you if you'd like. And they all just like turned and looked at me. And Michael's like, well, come on in. So I left the vocal booth. I went into the control room. I sat down. Luckily, it was one of those weird trackball mouse mice. I knew how to use it. And I just, you know, copied little clips of what I had done and dropped them in between the narration and got them mixed the way she wanted it and put together these packages to present to the client. And about a week later, just before graduation, it was was a nice moment, I will admit. It felt good to be that helpful and, you know, versatile and then um michael came up to me and said so um we're looking for a new engineer this summer and i was wondering if you would like a job and i mean i was like 48 hours from graduation and had no idea what was going to happen the next week that's a I was blessing just about to step off the cliff and I, I don't know send out resumes and he just saved me from having to do that so I said sure you know can I come can I start on Tuesday my family's still here on Monday from graduation he's like yeah sure no problem so on the Tuesday after graduation I started my first job wow. as a as a full-time audio engineer and I worked through the summer through the fall I was still I held on to I had a part-time job at Whole Foods at that point that one down at Symphony I kept that job in the evenings just in case things didn't work out at the studio and and that's how I started adulting and is that that that's one of the places where you recorded parts of your my first very album? first record yes so I was at that studio as I was simultaneously starting to work on my first record which was sort of like the collection of songs I had written while I was at Berkeley there's even a song I wrote when I was in high school on that record it's amazing <laughs> please don't look it up so <laughs> So Michael 
my boss was incredibly generous and let me do a ton of overdubs at the studio in ex- by bartering time in exchange for hours I spent editing at the studio. And it lined up well. And it, and it really served me because a few years later when I was gearing up to record what I think of as my first proper album, my first record that I released after I had any clue what I was doing, that's a record that came out in 2010 called Mystery Prize. And I started working at a studio in Atlanta where I had sort of migrated back after school. And I worked as an assistant in this studio, Gallup Studios, assisting the producer who owned it and I would record him he was an upright bass player and at that point there wasn't you know remote interfaces so he couldn't physically you know be in the control room to push record and in the live room to play his upright bass at the same time so it was great it meant I had a job so I would track him for overdubs and then I would also set up mix sessions for him and clean out the microphone closet and go get lunch when he had clients in or you know take instruments out for repair just do anything he needed me to do and by that point I had already started touring so I'd work for him kind of in my hours in between tour dates in 2007 and 8 and we calculated all the time I spent in the studio and used that to barter for production time on that record mystery prize which was how I got that album made because that was in the nascent days of crowdfunding so but I didn't really have much of a crowd to appeal to for support so I was able to you know pre-sell the album to a few friends and family and mm-hmm. the few fans that I had gained since starting to tour in 2005 but mostly I was able to pay for that album by using my engineering background which was wow. helpful so just kind of going off that a little bit what would you say the importance of of touring and sort of starting out from not having so much of a fan base to kind of meeting people in person and building collection of, of, of fans in the modern day and age. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think the difference between nothing and a little is actually a lot bigger than the difference between a little and a lot. Because once you have a little, you have something to work with. But when you're starting with nothing, and this isn't just in music, I think. When you're starting just with nothing, it takes so much effort and so many steps and so much luck and just so much hard work to get even just a little something going. You know, it's like you think about the difference between having a couple of rocks and having a small fire is a lot different than than the difference between having a small fire and a big fire. So true. Yeah, that I'm going to use that again because that just occurred to me. But I think that's a good. <laughs> that's one. a great example. Thank you. <laughs> so, going from an audience of zero to an audience of fifty, I think requires a lot of hard work and some luck and some skill and timing and just keeping at it. And then once you have an audience of fifty people, you have fifty people who can help you build to two hundred. Right. So I went on my first tour in the fall of. 2004 which was right after I graduated Berkeley and right right after my first I spent that summer recording my first album and I released it in November and I kind of use the word tour with air quotes (laughs) because um, it was sort of like a kamikaze string of open mics and open mic features and you know pass the hat gigs and opening sets I, I mean I would have been thrilled to play an opening set for an actual band but like playing like in between her sets at dinner or you know lunchtime gigs at colleges I would just play whatever I could and it was like eight shows over 14 days spreading from my two hometowns of Atlanta to Boston and it basically started because I 
had gotten a hand-me-down car that was in Atlanta and I had to get it up to Boston. And I was like, well, I know, I'll go on tour. <laughs> That's an amazing idea. Yeah. So I started playing, you know, and like an example of the type of gig I played was that I saw there was like a restaurant in Fairfax, Virginia that had music seven nights a week. So I called and said, can I come play on Thursday, November 8th? And they said, sure. And I was like, I have a gig. And I put it on my little tiny website that my boyfriend's father had built for me. And I was so excited. And I roll up to my gig. And it is like an Irish bar that has just opened sessions every night from 6 p.m. till close. So the answer is yes, anyone can come play at any time. But I had just like booked myself and said, like, I'm going to be there at 8 p.m. on this Thursday, you know, and there were, you know, 11 people in the room and they were all talking. But there was one guy in the back of the room who was like focused and paying attention. And at the end of the night, he bought 10 CDs and has booked me for gigs, you know, like he booked me for a house concert like later on that tour because he could tell I was not making much money. And he's, supported me on every trip I've done through the DC area since then. Wow. And that was like 15 years ago. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy how things can just unfold like that. Yeah, well, and a good example of that also is on that same tour I played in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I played an open mic and at that open mic I met a singer-songwriter from Charlotte who was in a band and he, the next time I came, I was able to open for his band. And there were two other bands on the bill. So then the time after that, I was able to co-bill with another one of the bands on that bill. And then after like several, and I developed my relationships with both of those bands. And I'd share shows with them. And I'd swat, you know, those two bands were called Miles Apart and Solganic. And I don't think either of them are performing in that iteration anymore. Because, mm -hmm. dear God, it's hard to keep a band together. But if you want to hear some sweet jams from the Charlotte scene at circa 2004 to 2008 you can look those bands up on Spotify they were great and they were both really supportive of me and the individual members of those bands then went on to do different projects and they've all just been helpful allies as I've you know moved through my career and helped me build you know what I do in Charlotte now I can headline shows in Charlotte North Carolina which is you know something that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't played this open mic back right. in 2004. Wow, it's just different pieces to the puzzle yeah. all falling together. Well, and it all, you know, it all changes. Like, the music industry seems to be on really rapid cycles now. You know, it's like, I would say it ch turns over every few years, but I think it's actually just like every six months now. The landscape is so different between releasing an album in 2017 and releasing an album in 2019. We're such different experiences just because of the landscape, the way that people listen, the fact that, like... People are more and more people are waking up and realizing they no longer own CD players, and so how do you make a living as someone who sells CDs? It, it, you, you're right. It the landscape is constantly changing. How do you keep up with trends, and, or do you? Um, I don't make much of an effort to stay on top of trends. I I try and observe what floats across my sort of narrow field of existence, you know, and and I. I can't help but when I'm listening to a song, sort of deconstruct it as I'm listening, especially the production choices. Oh, it's completely. one of the first classes you take when you're an MP&E. It's called um, critical listing or something. And it just 
kind of ruins music for you forever um, <laughs> because you can't help but anytime you're listening to a recording you have this feed in the back of your mind saying oh they doubled the vocal on the chorus or ooh they dropped out the bass in the second verse interesting move circa like 1997 bold choice bold choice and you know it's like ooh those drums are thematically consistent with that reference to rolling thunder in the third chorus you know it, <laughs> I had a really similar experience after taking that class yeah yeah it's just it just destroys it but I'll you know I talked to a friend who's an interior designer and she said it was the same way we were sitting in a Chinese food restaurant and she said that since she took her like intro to interior design class and got her you know masters in interior design she can't sit in a space wow. without deconstructing the design choices that have led to that space like she'd be sitting in this room thinking like "Ooh, white wall versus a purple wall that's interesting because that's a white with grayish tones in it and you know how the fluorescent lighting affects that and what this table choice is and so I actually prefer our curse of not being able to listen to music without deconstructing it because you can choose whether you're listening to music you can't choose whether you're in a space you are right. always in a space and that is the curse and blessing of learning more about a creative subject whether it be interior design or music or or art you you you're not really looking at it so much as uh, with a blind eye you're you're observing it yeah and that is like you said definitely has its positives and and negatives absolutely so as as a songwriter you choose and you write songs about pretty powerful issues and a lot of a lot of things covering a wide a wide spectrum when you're writing a song do you feel that it's important to convey a specific a certain idea or kind of let the listener have interpretation you know I took um, songwriting classes while I was here and one of my teachers Pat Patterson said something that I thought was a really important distinction he said there's an important difference between being ambiguous and being vague. So if a lyric is ambiguous, it leaves room for interpretation, but has powerful meaning in a few in a variety of different ways. And if a lyric is vague, it's more on the meaningless side, but perhaps it just rhymes really well and you're just kind of desperate to squeeze it in there. So I always ask myself, like, does this make sense does this serve the message i'm trying to deliver is this ambiguous or is it vague when when you're writing or creating or recording you probably have ideas going through your head all the time how how do you capture those how do you kind iPhone. of conjure that i don't know what i would do without my iphone um and luckily i think these things are all on the cloud now because i'm occasionally scatterbrained and leave things laying around and you know i've got this this fall is a really good example. I've been um, touring a lot this year, and now I'm in. I have I have started a band, and so I've got you know a second full time job as a, <laughs> as a as a member of a collaborative band project. And you know I'm not the most disciplined writer in the world. I'm not like oh I get up every morning and I write in my dream journal and then you know I do songwriting for the first ninety minutes of the day because that's when my brain is freshest. It's like there's only 24 hours a day and when I'm on tour especially you know it's like great if I can brush my teeth you know I mean which I do by the way I have great dental hygiene but um, yeah thank you um but it's like usually it's like I only have time to eat two meals and then like you know my my bar habits remain it's you know I've moved on to rx bars but still so 
you know, it's just hard to fit everything in. And I do not push it with songwriting because I find that I need to have time and space and privacy and some openness in order to feel comfortable enough to write. And that's not conducive to writing on tour for me. But this fall, I've been so busy and I've been very inspired and I probably have like 75 little snippets, like one or two line snippets that have popped into my head while I've been driving or sound checking for a gig or, you know, walking down the streets in Boston. And I've whipped out my phone so much recently to just record these little one or two bar fragments. And it's usually melodies and lyrics kind of together. And then the ideal would be to have a big wide chunk of time in the very near future to get to expand on that and try and flesh out as much of it as possible while the idea is fresh. The longer it goes from that initial moment of inspiration, the less likely it is to ever turn into a fully developed song. But because I've been so busy recently, but also so inspired, I now have this giant file of little song starts, little seeds, any of which could perhaps turn into a full length song. Mm -hmm. What I need is the time. I need I need a bed to plant them in. And uh, I could take that metaphor very far. I need to water them. I need to grow <laughs> them. I need to get them sunlight. I need to give them quiet time and four walls and a door that closes and just my undivided attention and perhaps, you know, a day or two without internet access to really just get some get some songs out of them. Do you feel you seem like a very collaborative person and you have you surround yourself with amazing people and artists does collaboration come natural to you or is that sort of a skill that you had to hone definitely the latter um co-writing is not my first instinct as a writer um i'm more likely to write songs by myself but I, and I had actually sort of a fear of co-writing and a belief that I wasn't capable of it. That like some people can co-write, some people write with others well, but not me. It's not for me. I tried it once and it didn't work. You know, I was sort of my attitude about it. And then I stopped and thought, you know what, that's just me, like being afraid of something. That's just me scared to make myself as vulnerable as I need to make myself in order to write a song with another person. I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah, because when I write, I mean, usually it takes 49 terrible ideas before I get to the 50th, which is a good one, you know, that you can work with. And the thought of saying those 49 bad ideas out loud in the room with another person who would know what an idiot I am, like, that was horrifying to me. But I was working on songs for a record that came out in 2017, and I spent about three years working on the songs for that record and with that record I was determined to dive a little deeper and to cover some territory I hadn't covered before and I thought you know what I really want is to make myself more vulnerable on this record and what better way to do that than to go through a songwriting process that makes me feel deeply vulnerable mm -hmm. so I decided to give co-writing another try and I got together in Nashville with a friend of mine named Jen Grinnells who had just moved to Nashville and was also terrified by co-writing. And we were having dinner. We were out at sushi. We were like, you know, I'm afraid of co-writing. So am I. Well, we should do it together because we won't be embarrassed in front of each other. Yeah, yeah. We're going to lock ourselves in your garage studio tonight with a bottle of wine. We're not going to come out until we run out of wine or until we finish the song. So we, uh, That's great. yeah, yeah. So we got to her house and she was like, all right, let's go to the studio. And I was like, oh, you were serious about that? Oh. Okay. <laughs> so 
we went into the studio with plenty of wine and we each just sort of like looked through our phones and our journals to try and find a start something to, to go with she's reading through an old journal I'm browsing through my phone I'm looking at old little starts and I came across this one that was almost a completed chorus that I had totally forgotten I wrote it was something that had occurred to me in my sleep I had woken up from a dream with the song idea in my head recorded it into my phone and then fallen back asleep and then completely forgotten about it but it was like most of this chorus it was like um it was a song called Smoke Signals. And the chorus is, I can't read smoke signals. So um, I played that for her. She liked it. And we started developing that. We wrote verses. We wrote a bridge. And by the end of the night, we had a pretty well-established, finished song. And I woke up the next morning thinking, like, I, c- I can do it. Like, I, I thought I couldn't, but I just did. Therefore, I can. So I told my manager, Ralph, who's actually on the uh, business staff here faculty and um I said you know I think I want to go to Nashville and try doing some real co-writing so he hooked me up with a publisher who then um scheduled a bunch of co-writing sessions for me with published uh writers in Nashville and I booked some writing appointments with friends and over the course of 10 days I did eight co-writing appointments and by the end of the week I had two songs like i Two songs I loved, two songs that were okay, two songs that I wasn't so fond of, a couple of starts that didn't go anywhere, but two great songs that I felt really confident in. It wasn't bad for 10 days work for me. That's amazing. Yeah. So I went home. Those songs are called, that I wrote in Nashville, um, Easy Money, I co-wrote with Jeremy Drinkwine and Mick Holland, and Cannonball, which I co-wrote with a woman named Ashley McBride, who's now like a Grammy-nominated CMA award-winning superstar. She's a total badass. And um, and yeah, so those went on that record, and that was kind of the beginning of my belief in co-writing as a reasonable path for me. And that led me to a couple of years later when I started this project with Grace Pettis and Betty Sue. We were gearing up to go on tour together, and they said, well, we should try writing together. Mm-hmm. And previously, I might have been like, nope, can't do it, not for me. But I had been through this process already where I had realize I, I disabused myself of that self-limiting belief and so I was like you know what sure I mean it's not my first choice but I don't want to be a party pooper I'll come along and we wrote three songs in 18 hours and at the end of that 18 hours played those songs for the people whose studio we were at and they said oh well, you know what we just started a record label and um, we'd like to sign you as a band when it flows it flows it was flowing <laughs> <laughs> wow that so the record label that I, I've I've read somewhere that you, in the beginning, you, you sort of were doing everything on your own. You you were, you were, you were recording, you were writing, the whole the whole package. Yeah. What are your thoughts, kind of in, as your career progresses? What are your thoughts on, on record labels, on in on management, on kind of getting other people into the mix? And you mentioned Ralph Jackadine. How yeah. how did you how did you intertwine with him? Oh, he's a gem. Oh gosh. Okay. Well, you know, my first tour in two thousand four was just me and a beat up Ford Taurus. And in two thousand six, I was still kind of bouncing in between my three jobs and touring. And I decided I could probably afford to tour full time if I wasn't paying rent in Boston. So I put all my stuff in storage and I moved into my station wagon and just started driving around the country in big 
circles. Station wagon, great car. Yeah, great car. 1992 Toyota Camry. I loved that car. I wish I hadn't sold it. I should have kept it. Had a CD player and a tape player. Everything a girl could That's need. That's all you need. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyhow, I was a solo operator. And slowly, you know, I added team members. First, I my, The first people I signed with was in 2006. I brought on a college booking agent to help me get more gigs at colleges. And that sort of helped me build my income. And I always joked that every time they called me, I was so happy I wanted to sing a song out loud because they would call me saying hey we have a gig for you and they were much better paying gigs than I was able to get on my own you know open mic features and stuff yeah and uh and then you know years went on and I just sort of gradually built my team in 2008 I met a guy named John Porter who is a long-standing as he would say industry weasel he works you know he's worked in the music industry forever he worked with Lyle Lovett and Carrie Rodriguez and all sorts of just great wonderful people he's worked in major label marketing he's been an artist manager forever he's and I met him because he spoke on a panel at a music industry conference and I just went up to him afterwards and pestered him <laughs> you know and I whenever I go to a, a panel at a conference like that I always go and introduce myself to the panelists because you never know where it's going to lead and no, just uh, try and make a friend it's great to just talk to people exactly to see exactly the ins and outs of that so he was super nice this was 2008 it was very early days for me i didn't have a record that i felt was representative of what i did but i i did have a three song demo of my newer songs so i handed him this burned cd i'd made at home and to his great credit he listened to it like that day he emailed me back like some suggestions about what to do next and for the next few years every time i was coming through new york city he'd take me out to lunch and give me some advice he was he's like look i can't possibly afford to manage you because you make the least amount of money of anyone in the music industry and would be the most work to manage because that's the thing about artists who are just starting out if you're somebody who gets paid on commission a new artist makes the least amount of money but takes the most amount of effort to, to get up. So he was paying New York City rent and had a kid and he was just like, this isn't possible for me. But I will take you out to lunch and, you know, guide you along your path. So he just sort of gave me advice and would, you know, help put me in touch with the people I needed to talk to. And then in late 2011, he's like, look, you're definitely ready for a real management. It still can't be me, but this guy, Ralph Jackadine, just parted ways with a female singer-songwriter client, a woman named Ancha Duvacote, who's fantastic, and they parted on good terms. And John said, whether Ralph knows it or not, he has an opening in his roster for a female singer-songwriter, so you should send him an email, and here's what it should say. And he gave me some great advice, which I think is great advice just about reaching out in general. And it wasn't like, hi, my name's Rebecca. Will you be my manager, please? Like, hi, can we get business married? It was, hi, yeah. I really admire your work. It's my goal to someday work with a manager of your caliber. And in the meantime, I wanted to introduce myself and let you know that I'm out here working hard. And, you know, I'd love to meet some time for 15 minutes and pick your brain, that kind of thing. And then at the bottom of the email, I put links to a few recent videos and the list of previous gigs played in the past year. And at that point, I mean, I was still living in the station wagon. I was averaging like 187 shows a year. So it was a very long list. The venues weren't very good, but they were numerous. And it was this, it was like the Dead Sea Scroll, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of how many shows I'd played. And Ralph wrote back. And now I know him. I know he gets 30 of these emails a week from aspiring artists. Like, it still just is so mind blowing to me that, that he was willing to reach back out so he responded we set up a phone call he said wow you have been working hard let's get on the phone sometime so we had a phone call and just sort of chatted about his career about my career he told me about Ellis Paul who he had been managing for over 20 years at that point and he said you know why don't you send me 
a CD with some information. And I forgot this next detail, but when I spoke at his class recently, he reminded me that what happened next is, and again, I totally forgot this, but I had just boosted my grandmother's 1947 vintage electric typewriter from her house. And I was obsessed with typing things on this old typewriter. So I typed with a typewriter his address on the outside of the envelope I sent him. Wow. I didn't remember doing it, but <laughs> it was, I, I was just, I loved this thing. There was just a six month period where everything I sent out, I typed on the typewriter. So he receives multiple packages a week from, again, aspiring artists, but this one that lands on his desk and it clearly has like, you know, an analog typewriter typed address on it. He was like, what is this? Stands out. Yeah, and he picked it up and he listened to it and he liked it. And, you know, called me back. We chatted some more. He came out to see me play a showcase in the spring. You know, it was a melt. And then we had like a few months of kind of like dancing. It was kind of like dating. And at the time it was very stressful. But now in retrospect, I realize like when you're taking on a client like that, you've got to be really careful from a management perspective because you are – tying your fortune to theirs you're tying your name to theirs you're giving that client full access to your rolodex and to all of these relationships that you've spent many years building and you are kind of getting business married you know you're and you know again someone like me at that time made very little money and would represent a lot of effort so i appreciate that he was being careful and slow but i was just on pins and needles for months like is it gonna happen is it gonna happen has it happened yet so anyhow we did eventually sign in the spring of 2012 and he immediately you know things started to accelerate from there he got a manager on board I mean, he got a booking agent on board for me almost right away and for my next release we hired a publicist and then you know soon i was approached by this record label that makes live albums so i signed a deal with them in 2014 which kind of bought me some time for making my next studio record and then we were perfectly happy as like a independent shop you know like agent manager kind of that was it right. <laughs> agent manager artist and then occasionally hiring out publicity but honestly publicity was out of my means financially even with crowdfunding because I'm a dumb musician and I spend all the money on making the art that's just what artists do that's the right thing to do yeah well yes and no I mean you know a label will tell you that a record costs 10 to 20 grand to record but a minimum of 40 grand to promote in any meaningful way that's going to have impact between you know conventional press terrestrial and satellite radio internet radio you know like working online stuff social media like all that stuff like it just costs a lot of human labor hours to do that work and you've got to pay humans so it costs a lot of money and for me you know I'd be able to cobble together a few thousand dollars it would almost completely destroy me financially and it wouldn't be very much money from a publicist's perspective so I'd be a very low priority client for any publicist that I could barely afford to work with and it created this huge discrepancy in value between like what they their value to me versus my value to them so it created some very uncomfortable situations with me hiring my own publicity I'm not sure I would do it again um because unless I suddenly become independently wealthy um just because of that value discrepancy but I had the great good fortune in 2018 of accidentally signing two record deals which was not something I was looking for but after 15 years um in the industry I found myself uh at, at a gig with a record label executive in the audience his name's Denby Auble he runs a 
label in Houston called Blue Corn Music. They've had several Grammy-nominated, Grammy Award-winning artists and albums on their roster over the past 20 years it's just like a small boutique shop you know they release one album at a time kind of like a few records per year they really work each one of them and and they're wonderful people and he came right up to me after the gig and said my name's Denby I own a record label and I want to be involved in your next album and you know after 15 years in the music industry and I I believe that Adult happiness is 99% expectation management. (laughs) That is just what I have come to believe. So I was unwilling to allow myself to believe that he might actually be for real. And I, so I was like, yeah, right. You want a CD? They cost $15. I'll see you at the merch table. (laughs) He came to the merch table. He stood in line at the merch table. He bought three CDs and he emailed me and Ralph first thing Monday morning to set up a meeting. And he took me out to lunch. He drove all the way from Houston to Austin to take me out to lunch, told me all about the label and his history. And about halfway through the lunch, I realized, oh my God, I think he's serious. I think he actually does have a legit label and an ethos that's very compatible with mine. And he really does want to release my next album. And suddenly I went from like being like kind of nonchalant about the whole thing to being incredibly nervous. You know, sweaty palms, dry mouth. I think I knocked over a glass of water. I was like bumbling all over myself. But he stuck with me. We signed a deal. And it was a few months after that that these women that I was planning on touring with the next year, we got together and did this co-write. And that co-write led to us being offered a record deal as a trio. And I was like very upfront. I said, you know, well, for the record, I'm already negotiating a deal for my next solo album. But if you guys are okay with that, if these don't conflict, then Mm -hmm. sure. And, you know, I made sure everybody was aware. And, you know, they had requests about not overlapping the release schedule too much. And that's been easy to balance. And I I just, it, it was unbelievable. I hired one lawyer to negotiate both deals. And 15 years after my first album came out, I signed two record deals. It was crazy. So the experience of releasing with a label versus solo. With a label, I mean, I've found it to be really fascinating to learn that the bigger the team gets, it's like the more people you have rowing. You know, you're in your boat. And yeah, you, you feel, you feel that way. But I'm not rowing any less hard. You know, I'm not working any less hard. I'm not any less obsessed with my career. I'm. It's still the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning and the last thing I think about when I go to sleep. Sorry to all my family members who might be listening to this podcast. I'm a, I'm a jerk. But I have been just, I've had this like single-minded obsession since, since I got out of school. It's probably what got me into school. And that is what has kept me just marching forwards towards the horizon endlessly day in and day out is that I'm just independently very inspired to push this thing and take it as far as I can and having this big team with me I think actually made me work harder because I felt this pressure with the label releasing the album this year like this is my shot I have an album coming out on an actual record label I need to do as much as I can to make the most of this opportunity and I worked harder than I have ever before you know I pushed to have at least three or four music videos when the release came out I booked the worked with my agent to book the very best tour I could I took my band out on tour for the first time like I and I honestly pushed myself so hard that I ended up after about four months of hardcore release touring um threw my back out picking up a suitcase after a gig and ended up in bed for three weeks and had to cancel a tour in England so anyhow we could do a whole podcast about burnout (laughs) 
<laughs> about the importance of taking care of yourself. Well, thanks for tuning in to Cut Time. For more information about Rebecca and her upcoming projects, head over to RebeccaLoby.com. As always, information in future episodes can be found at the mbj.org. Thanks, and see you next time.